You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with your historical true crime that is everything from the 1950s and before, because the good old days weren't always so good. Before we get started with this week's topic, uh, don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Everything at the $5 level, you get access to all of our bonus material. That is over 50 old tiny crimies. And those run 20, 30, 40 minutes-ish. And that's where we each one of us tells the other two a story from historical true crime that they haven't heard. And they honestly, I love our episodes that we've done in our almost 100 (laughs) episodes that we've done. But some of those old tiny crimies, I am sad that they don't get more exposure. (laughs) <laughs> because they're so good, you know. I could agree with that. And the tiny is to have a different element of of like surprises since two of us don't know what we're talking about. And speaking so of exposure I, on the Patreon, my nude photo set's coming up for uh, for everybody at the ten dollar <laughs> tier. We also have our monthly extra extra episode where we do something a little different each time. And we had so much fun in the last one talking about the book Rest in Pieces. The curious fates of famous corpses and there were guys amber had so many penises so many dicks so So many many dicks and scott had a lot of people eating things that they shouldn't be eating that came from dead bodies other people stop it (laughs) so it was definitely a fascinating episode so you want to look into that you also get a shout out on the episode if you become a patron and we will sing your name or say it in a weird accent uh i might try australian because that's where every accent i have goes anyhow and there's also if you're not the long-term relationship type if you just want to leave a buck on the nightstand there's our paypal uh you can send any amount of money you choose to oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com via PayPal, and we'll give you a shout out on the show. So let's talk about the Astor Place Riot. Scott. Looking it up on Wikipedia right now? (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) So first we're going to talk about, oh, actually first two things I wanted to get out of the way. Uh, This involves Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare so much that I named my very first cat of my own that I like adopted myself after Shakespeare. So there's that. Uh, I you, you love Shakespeare. I love it so much. I can only orgasm in the iambic pentameter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the weird kink, Scott. Yeah. Oh, don't kink shame me. So I have slipped into uh, my notes for this episode. Many, not many, a few quotes from the play that is kind of rather central to the actors in this discussion that were kind of the impetus for the riot. Kind of. We'll get into that. Another thing is I have a hard time saying that play's name on the air. Fellow drama nerds, what up? It's the Scottish play. Oh, Macbeth. (laughs) You said it. No, the ceiling's going to crash down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Because the bad luck... My luck is just so fucking good as it is. Like the my best hope is just saying Macbeth over and over and over to try to do a one eighty. Maybe saying Macbeth is good luck for me. I I, uh, I don't remember the exact remedy to it, but I think it was something like you had to run around the building three times and then spit something like that. But yeah, there's a there's a big thing in the theater that you say that name on stage and it invokes all of the, the, the hell of the theater gods upon your production. So Scott, we're definitely recording and everything's cool, right? <laughs> Cause you said it. <laughs> yeah, we're recording. All right. I don't I'm think gonna... Macbeth's going to, going to, going to affect this at all. Stop gonna... saying that Chrissy's eye is going to start twitching. Macbeth. <laughs> it already is. 
so yeah, just if I if I do say the Scottish play, if I don't get up the nerve to actually say the name of it, then know that I am referring to the the the, the M play that takes place in in Scotland. So yeah, and has witches in it. Macbeth. So stop it, please. So. <laughs> First, we're going to talk about a man named Edwin Forrest. He was an American actor who was born in 18... No, he was not born in 1849. He was born in Philadelphia in 1806. He would eventually become very famous with theatergoers in the U.S. He had a more bombastic style than had been kind of imported from Britain. He, he was quite a rugged looks. And his, some of his older pictures, I would say there's a, a certain Nick Offerman quality. So I kind of feel a little, a little bit of Ron Swanson peering out from behind those eyes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see that. The face is a little bit too long. Uh, yeah. If, if you ever see the men who stare at goats, that's a great example of how nerdy Nick Offerman really looks like without a mustache. <laughs> he, and it's, he plays it's Scotty in that, by the way. <laughs> hmm. It's not all of his pictures. It's mainly the slightly older ones. So he first treaded the boards on stage at age 11, playing Rosalia de Borgia in The Rudolph or The Robbers of Calabria, because why have one title when you can have two? Jesus and, Christ. I'm looking at a picture of Forrest whenever he was 21. He, he went from, like, as he gets older, Nick Offerman, at 21, he looked like fucking Mr. Bean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when he was 13, his father died and he started trying his hand at several different trades. He did all kinds of apprenticeships, but it seemed like nothing would stick. And then comes this story, which I feel like has to be apocryphal, but I can't find anything to prove it didn't happen. He goes to a lecture. They were talking about the effects of nitrous oxide, and he volunteered to be a subject and be administered nitrous oxide. That kind of messes with his brain some, and he ends up just busting out a speech from Richard III. And that snagged him an audition, and he got into theater from there. It feels very much milk, milkshake counter, you know? Yeah, like I, because that's what I do when I'm high on nitrous oxide, is I start putting <laughs> Shakespearean plays. The bass player in my first band w was fucking addicted to whippets, right? Until one morning, like Bill calls me and he goes, Scott, I need you to pick me up. And you gotta remember, these are these are the days before before there are cell phones. So he had to go to he had to walk to a payphone. I go, Bill, where are you? He goes, I don't know. I said, Well, you're gonna have to ask around. He goes, I can't ask. I said, Well, you're gonna have to walk until you find a street name or something so I know where the hell you are. He goes, Scott, I did whip it. So finally. As we see a couple of street names, I figure out he's in Grantsville, Maryland. I drive over to Grantsville. I find him. He's covered head to toe in blood. Right? Not his. We never did figure out whose it is. I said, Bill, what happened? Because I was doing whippets at a party after the show. And uh, I woke up on somebody's lawn covered in blood next to a dead deer wearing a polka dot dress. <laughs> Wait, the deer was wearing a polka dot dress or he was? The deer was, <laughs> was wearing a polka dot dress. Now, once again, how much of this, how much of what Bill told me was the actual in reality truth and not some sort of nitrous induced hallucination hangover? <sighs> Don't know. He was covered wow. in blood, though. <laughs> oh, wow. That is something. Well... Another thing is that's uh, something was that Forrest was, because it was a different time, uh, one of the things he was famous for was his blackface characters. Supposedly, well. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, supposedly he did it so well that he even fooled the black people. And it's just all really gross. Sure he did. Sure he did. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly where my mind went. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. But my Lord is often thus and hath been from his youth. So <laughs> getting those quotes in. Yeah. But <laughs> you guys just, just wait. He was a big supporter of new playwrights. Even as he was getting his fame from a playwright of very, very old, Shakespeare. 
And here's the thing about Shakespeare during this time period. If I asked you guys or anyone in our audience to think of a Shakespeare quote, they might bust out to be or not to be is probably the most likely. Uh, another possibility is, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? But they wouldn't remember beyond that. Uh, those are pretty much it. That's pretty much it for us. Or if they heard it somewhere in like a, you know, a, a cartoon or if they had to memorize a speech in high school, I had to memorize two. And so, and those kind of stuck with me somewhat. I can do a half-assed version of the whole Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo. I, I hated Romeo and Juliet. Um <laughs> Well, you know what? I think a lot of people quote Shakespeare without realizing they're quoting Shakespeare. That is very true. Shakespeare, I have a a book uh, called Sweet Swan of Avon, and it's actually an argument that Shakespeare was a noble woman in England. Fascinating I book. I loved it. Fascinating book. And it begins by telling you how many words shakespeare coined and phrases and it's truly amazing how much he contributed to the language okay so so i just want to, to point out some of these so all that glitters is not gold yep now is the winter of our discontent yep let's not the forget the name too much let's not forget the name vanessa what is that oh oh <laughs> there's a there's a oh, child fuck was that <laughs> But yeah, he, he he has a lot of a lot of quotes uh, that we say without even realizing. Even you know, I I know quite a bit about Shakespeare. <laughs> there are tiny people on Amber's screen. I'm sorry, guys. It's hard not to be amused. The air in Amber's house hangs heavy with the stench of dwarves and midgets. I'm glad we're not talking about like a horribly gruesome murder right now. While I look at adorable children climbing all over Amber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, still, it would still be. She pointed to her headphones and she was like, they can't hear you. And I'm like, no, it would be unsettling for me. I, I'm not thinking about them. Yeah. <laughs> to hell with the kids. So, so yeah, Shakespeare, it, it was not thus in the 1800s. As theater started to really become a part of the national fabric, people loved Shakespeare and Americans started to kind of take him in as their own. And people knew entire soliloquies and, you know, verse after verse after verse of Shakespeare and could just rattle them off. So you, you have to think of that as that Shakespeare was very much a part of people's lives back then. And it was a much more ingrained part than it is today, where he's just this figure, this old playwright. You know, we know a couple things about him. And we know a couple of, you know, if you're the average person who didn't take multiple Shakespeare classes in college, yes, hi, that's me. Um, you know, you know, a couple names of his plays and you've probably seen some adaptations in, in the in film. That's pretty much it. But back then it was a whole different thing. So you have to remember the possessiveness that Americans were feeling and just over Shakespeare and just how much they knew Shakespeare. So with that said, William McCready. We've given you Forrest's history. I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of a man named William McCready. He was another actor. He was British. So briefly, his history is he came by acting as honestly as you can come by acting. Both of his parents were actors. It's kind of like the rare case where you'll be the black sheep if you're not an actor instead of if you are. So by 17, he was playing Romeo and he was popular in Britain, but he also at times did well in the U.S. He did well in Paris. He went on tours. One of his big fans was Charles Dickens. And by the 1840s, he was quite well known. One paper I read said that he was demanding a dollar a ticket in his American shows in the 1840s, um, which would be $34 in today's money. But some theaters were refusing to charge that much. It, Feels like papers were also taking sides too, because that was meant to be a dig against him and like, yay, American theater standing up to the Brits, you know? Revolution. Vive la France. No, wait. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Wrong country. Viva America. Vive la cheeseburger. Yeah. So, but at the time, he was Britain's most famous actor and he had a very reserved, refined, formal, less emotional take on especially Shakespeare and in general his characters than Forrest did. So you have these two competing styles as well that come from opposite sides of the Atlantic. So with their histories established, 
In the late 1830s, early 1840s, sometime there, McCready came to the U.S. to do a tour. And what Forrest did was he basically followed McCready from city to city, playing the same parts that McCready was playing, but in different theaters. So he's basically trying to siphon off the audience. And he he's making it... People are starting to get kind of fired up. They're, they're seeing this competition going on and they're getting in on it. At one point in Cincinnati, when McCready was playing on stage, someone in the audience threw half of a dead sheep on stage. Just half. And again, we have that question of which half and how was it cut? Right, right. It could be, was it the back half, the front half, left half, right half, top half, bottom half. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part of me hopes it was just like the four legs. It could be. Maybe it's like the way I do like like my, my toasted cheese sandwich. I like it cut diagonally. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best way to cut it, though. It's better for the dipping. Right, exactly. It was funny reading that sentence when I read it because my brain kind of tried to reconcile it and it tried to put through a half dead sheep on stage. And then I was like, I kind of sat back. I closed my eyes. I was like, it's probably the other one. And and then I looked at it and I read it. Nope. It's half of a dead sheep. I was like, we've once again got the body cut in half problem. How is it cut? Which half? (laughs) It happens all the time. It happens way too often. (laughs) So I'm going to type in McCready sheep. Hopefully there's a daguerreotype of this. So even if McCready was able to get a decent-sized audience, even despite these booking conflicts, the audience themselves are not decent at all if they're throwing half of a dead animal on stage. You know what, though? Like, I really hope that they threw Shakespearean insults at each other. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you hope this, too, but, like, one of them's like, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. <laughs> nice. I do hope. It was like a, a, like a Shakespearean rap battle. I, I one time did get the privilege of seeing, uh, when I was in grad school, they would have a cocktail party for everybody to mingle. And the one year, the uh, professors had a sort of... Uh, poetry slam like off the cuff coming up with 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 poetry and it was unbelievable i've never seen anything like it in my life and i never will again it was hilarious when when writers and poets get drunk you want to be around for that let me tell you <laughs> so uh forrest then went over to britain and he did his own tour and it was going pretty well for him at first he went to london and did some shows in 1845 some of his roles went over but when he did, I'm going to say it, guys. I'm going to say it. When he did Macbeth. Yeah! <laughs> Scott's very proud. I got her to see that it. One. All my bad luck is now on her. <laughs> <laughs> that one drew some hisses from the audience. And Forrest really blamed McCready for this. He was like, this is all McCready's fault. So a few weeks later... McCready was playing Hamlet and Forrest was in the audience and Forrest hissed. And so this was a big thing, like an, an actor hissing at another actor during his set, you know, during his play. That's like a comedian heckling another comedian during a set. You know, that's wait, just. Wait a minute. I can't get off this. I'm sorry. I have trouble sneaking jujubes into the theater. How the fuck did somebody sneak an entire half of a sheep? <laughs> Very big coat. Here, honey, put this in your purse. <laughs> yeah, like you're just walking in there, like I'm going to eat this for the show. This is this is my snack. <laughs> that, is, that is a good question. I hadn't thought of that. I don't. I don't think that they like charged you at the door for snacks or checked your purse for the extra like snow caps. Like back then, it was like, yeah, whatever. We don't have anything. But um, back then, though, drinking was a huge thing at these plays. So people would always be bringing stuff in because this was their time to get hammered. From the wickedstage.blogspot.com, I don't know if this means anything, but they're saying the side of a sheep. Interesting. Oh, okay. So it was either the left side or the right side. Left side or right side, but at least we know how it was cut. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have this solved by the end of it, ladies. <laughs> you keep it up. Technically, it still could have been diagonal. Yeah, it could have. <laughs> it absolutely could have. I like the face. I like to stare at my food while I'm eating it. You got half of a face, maybe though. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you got it diagonally, you can get the whole head. And it's just, you're gonna you're gonna sacrifice some rump. There's some good meat you're letting out there. You really are stuck on this. I really am. I'm sorry. Just the thought. Like I see tomatoes, rotten vegetables, maybe a cabbage if someone's feeling adventurous. Like the nutty guy brings in like a dead chicken and hurls it on stage. Who the fuck was the ballsy motherfucker to not only like we're missing a lot of stuff here. We're like going, oh, I wonder which half of the sheep. How did he sneak it in? And number two, what motherfucking upper body strength does this dude have to just whip a sheep at him? Oh, just a quick side note. If you Google forest half sheep, the first thing that comes up is meat forest, the five-legged lamb. Ah. Oh, oh dear. All right. I'm going to try and move this forward. I don't have high hopes for my success, but I'm going to try. <laughs> so... Uh, so yeah, McCready was playing Hamlet and Forrest stood up and hissed and this is not done. And then he compounded this by writing a letter to the Times in London trying to justify himself and basically defending what he did and saying he didn't care. And in England, that pretty much ruined his rep. But in America... They just loved him more for it. They're like, yeah, he's standing up for us. He's standing up for himself. He's standing up for American values. You have the right to hiss wherever you damn well please. MAGA. <laughs> so it had, up until that point, it had been kind of just all in fun. Then the tone started to change and it started to get bitter. And it also started to reflect some of the things going on in society at the time. Now, the working class called McCready the pet of princes. And they didn't like that any other Americans might like him. That was anathema to them because they were highly patriotic. So then you see the other side. You have the upper class and they see themselves as sort of America's nobility. And so, of course, they prefer a more refined performance given by a Brit and they're in their private boxes looking down on, you know, the masses of humanity, both figuratively and literally. And Amber just made a snooty nose face and I enjoyed it. <laughs> so. And really, all classes, nationalities, ethnicities, everybody was attending theater at this time. It was the national pastime. And everybody had their own expectations and their own reactions to what happened on stage and what happened off stage between the actors. So uh, James Cook from the University of Michigan said that the working class felt, quote, a certain kind of ownership of the stage and the people on it, as well as what those people did. So if uh, the working class is watching a play and it doesn't go the way they thought it should, well, they might throw half of a sheep up there. They might throw rotten vegetables. They'd scream, stomp, yell, threaten. But if an actor forgot a line, they might help them out. <laughs> You know, because, again, they all knew a lot of this, these, these plays, especially if they're Shakespeare, as almost as well as the actors themselves. I'm just remembering when I was in theater and I was doing a two person show back in, in college and I would re I would memorize my lines by memorizing the other person's lines, memorizing my cues, essentially. So I would just have those on an index card and then I'd re review those and try to remember what do I say in response. So I knew all of his lines as well. And he forgot his line. He's standing there right by the audience, like standing at a desk and in this intimate little theater. And I'm just like frozen in terror as the silence gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And finally, I was like, I can do something about this. And so I kind of saunter over to him real casual. I just lean over and I go, shoes <laughs> because the line was about shoes <laughs> just real quick whisper in his ear shoes but i'm i think i like to think i made it look organic so <laughs> so yeah but they, they didn't need other actors to help them out they had the audience to help them out sometimes the audience would hop on stage to crown themselves richard the <laughs> second they just grab the crown off of the actor's head and put it on their own. They're like, I'm the king now, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> now is the winter of your discontent. So, 
so this friction between the classes when you had people doing this from the working class and the nobility did not like these shenanigans and they wanted a more refined experience, it was projected onto the actors or it came from the actors to the audience. It's really kind of hard to tell. Um, Forrest's performance and his take on Shakespeare is a lot more emotional than intellectual. So that appealed to the working classes. He represented independence and America finding her own way and style with something that's so quintessentially British as Shakespeare. And yet that we all still to this day, we feel belongs to all of us. So, and of course, McCready's performance was more traditional, more buttoned up. So one was the people's actor and one was the literati's actor, essentially. The, the actor of what we would call today the 1%, but what they called back then the 10%. It was the, or sorry, they called it the 10,000. It was the 10,000 richest New Yorkers. Uh, they called them the upper 10. So now we just have the upper one. <laughs> that just doesn't tell you how... Wealth has gone upward in the past 170 years. I don't know what will. It's a little frightening. Mm -hmm. So this also played out a lot in the papers. They would write letters into the paper, attacking each other, defending themselves, or have people write letters on their behalf. I mean, it was some of the stuff I found. I was like, this is just all oh, attack, 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 defend, defend, defend. So this all added... I really feel like this was like a bunch of like high school girls just writing mean things about each other on Facebook. It really was. It really, really was. It was their Facebook wall. And yeah, that is exactly what they were doing. Yep. So that all added fuel to their professional rivalry. They couldn't stand each other by this point, And they both had extreme disdain for the other's take on particular Shakespearean roles. And the public was like, well, we love drama. I mean, we go to the theater for drama. We like some some backstage drama, so we're here for this. And everybody got really emotionally invested, I feel. So according to Bruce McEnachie, who is a professor of theater at the University of Pittsburgh, McCready not only became this, this symbol of refinement to the upper classes, he became a symbol of oppression to the working classes. And I have a quote. Not simply, not simply English oppression, but the oppression faced by working men, patriotic working men, by their own employers. So the dynamics of the riot take on the proportions of genuine class antagonism. When all of this erupts in 1849, as many of the newspapers say at the time, it's the rich against the poor. So you have all these rivalries brewing, rich versus poor, upper class versus working class, British versus American, and then at the really, really micro level, MacReady versus Forrest. So this is all simmering during the 1840s, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And theater riots were a thing that happened and it had been happening for a long time. We've been doing it in America since the 1700s. And like many traditions, we imported that one from Britain, where they'd been doing it before that. So it was very much a thing that we did. Just go to the theater and start a riot. Let's do that now. Let's bring it back, guys. If we Let's go bring to it a, back. If we go to a theater, there's going to be nobody there. Or people rioting because we're there. This Let's figure it out. This, this is true. It's like... If, if it's Johnson, it's like, hey, you're not wearing a mask. <laughs> Instant riot. <laughs> so it's, it's very much a case of uh, bleed, 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 poor country. Got another one in. So <laughs> I hope you guys are keeping count. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yes, that will be the number. A lot. <laughs> So there's also some stuff going on in Forrest's personal life that I was able to dig up. By 1849, he was having plenty of drama going on behind closed doors. And of course, some of that seeped out from behind those closed doors. He had been married in 1837, interestingly, to a British woman with some Scottish background. She was born in London, but her family was originally from Edinburgh. And... They were in 1849 in the beginnings of what would become an incredibly public divorce that was basically years of shit-slinging from both sides, specifically about adultery, but sometimes about other stuff. But my favorite, 
is the part where he suspected her of cheating with one of his fellow actors. So he's like, I'm going to set this up. Okay. I'm going to catch him in the act. He left the two alone and he's like, I'm going to go run an errand. And then he comes back and surprises them. He busts in and he finds that actor's hands all over his wife's head. Because reportedly he was doing an amateur phrenological exam on her. <laughs> they still deserve to be beaten, both of them. Well, false face must hide what the false heart doth know. There is only one thing in the world worse <laughs> than phrenology, and that's amateur phrenology. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's also the part where one of Forrest's nemeses, and he had quite a few, a poet published a pamphlet bashing Forrest. And then so Forrest was like, that dude's sleeping with my wife. So he goes, finds the poet and beats him with a whip. Jesus, Indy. Comet. <laughs> yeah. And then the poet sues him, I guess. There's different ways of, of attacking a problem. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's legal. <laughs> so this divorce trial, when it eventually happened after three years of this back and forth that played out very much in the press. And again, it was the same thing with Forrest and McCready. It was the same thing with Forrest and his wife. They were sending letters to the paper, uh, you know, defending themselves and attacking the other. Just it was it was nonstop. It was actually em emotionally exhausting for me to even start to read them. I was like, I do not care. <laughs> I don't know how people of the day were like gobbling this up. But yeah, so. And they didn't have the Kardashians to watch. So like, this was like their, their real drama that they needed. People love this shit. It was proto-reality show. It. Yeah. Yeah, they ate it up. When the divorce trial finally happened, it took six weeks for a divorce trial. Six weeks. And the judge ordered him to pay her $3,000 in alimony per year. Anybody want to guess how much that is in today's money? 6,000 per year. No, 3,000 3, per year. 3,000 per year. I'm going to say 48,000. Um, Sorry. Was too close. That was too close to what I was going to say. So I'm going to go 55,000. $100,000. Wow. <laughs> yep. So, but that wouldn't happen for a couple years. In 1849, uh, about one month before the, the major events we're going to discuss here, on April 8th, he threw her out of the house. And so things are pretty rickety up in his personal threw life. Threw her like a sheep. <laughs> yeah, like half a sheep. Add into that that McCready is touring again in the U.S. And Forrest is pulling his old trick of following the tour, but in different theaters so that friction is really ramping up between them once again i love the pettiness i love all this pettiness <laughs> forrest is a petty betty oh my god he is such a petty betty <laughs> so now what we have here we do have a riot that happens but we have the precursor to the riot first so we're gonna do Suit, the suits yeah we're gonna do the pre-riot and then we're gonna do the actual riot on May 7th, 1849, McCready was supposed to play Macbeth at uh, the Astor Place Theater, which was the hoity-toity high-class theater. And now, of the people who went to the Astor Theater, there was a, another contingent that was very much against them. And they were known as the Bowery Boys, or they also called themselves Bahoys, like B apostrophe H-O-Y-S. So I fucking hate that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's odd because apparently a lot of their slang came from uh, Irish words. So they said "bahoys" kind of, and they said that's that's how you know Irish people said it. And I think girls were like, I can't remember what girls were, but um, they were uh, they came from the Bowery neighborhood. Obviously, it was a working class community, and the Bowery boys' values were basically anti-immigrant, anti-Irish, anti-Catholic. So, so they just didn't fucking like anybody, did they? Yeah. But it's weird to me that they drew a lot of their slang, even their From own the name. Irish. Yeah, that seems kind of weird to me. 
And so they were made up uh, almost entirely of volunteer firemen. They were pro-working man and pro-theater, especially the Bowery Theater where they would go to get rowdy and also where Forrest had his debut appearance. So that was kind of like a home base for him. There's a quote from Walt Whitman about the theater at this point in time. Quote, packed from ceiling to pit with this audience, mainly of alert, well-dressed, full-blooded young and middle-aged men, the best average of American-born mechanics. God, look at them. <laughs> <laughs> They're full-blooded. Oh, God, yes. Oh, I love me some mechanics. Look at that. Oh, my God. He's <laughs> circling the wrench. Look at him. <laughs> now, you notice that he said young and middle-aged men, Women could attend, but they had to have an escort. If you went alone, you were a sex worker. Just automatically, the only woman who goes to the theater alone is a sex worker. Of course. Imagine living under those rules today. Oh, I, I would have murdered so many husbands. You'd be doing <laughs> a show about me. Yes, we would. We still might. So, <laughs> so this McCready performance is going on at the Astor Place Theater on May 7th, and the Bowery Boys and a bunch of other working-class people all buy tickets to that performance, and they start showing up and taking their seats and really making their presence known. They want those hoity-toity high-class types to know that they are there. The New York Herald said as soon as the doors were opened, a very large number of persons, altogether of the male sex, entered the theater and took their seats in different parts of the house. They were followed by many others, among whom were probably 50 or 60 ladies. Although the paper took pains to later state that it seemed that none of the ladies were Forest fans. They were all, they were all McCready girls. Mm. So the chief of police gets word of what's going on, and he and some of his men show up to keep an eye on things. Now, at first, when a character enters on stage, there's a lot of just cheering and whistling. Everything's really positive in the audience. And it's so much cheering and whistling that the actors are doing the play, but nobody can hear a damn word of dialogue. It's just that, you know, they know that they can't be here, but they're like, well, if, if they wanted to hear it, then they'd shut the hell up, wouldn't they? So <laughs> they are just doing the whole thing and the whole play and nobody can hear them. And then finally, middle of act one, scene three, McCready comes on stage and it's a torrent of boos and hisses and just outright animosity being hurled at him from the audience. So he just stands there, says not a single word. He's just waiting for them to be quiet so he can get started. It's very uh, third grade teacher with a rowdy classroom, in my opinion. <laughs> So he's just about to go over and start flicking the lights on and off. He's this close. So. <laughs> and that's when they ramp it up. This, this silence on his part doesn't seem to de-escalate the situation at all. They start throwing more than animosity. They start hurling eggs that are, of course, rotten and some other rotten foods. No sheep, also, though, huh? No sheep yet, but they did throw something called... Asafetida? I had to do some digging around. It's apparently dried latex derived from the roots of several species of ferula, which is known, and it's known as stinking gum, devil's dung, or food of the devils. And somehow they liquefied this and threw it on stage. And all the actors ended up getting uh, some of the, the asafetida on them. So, so this was like the first variation of that like fart spray. Is <laughs> yeah, stink bomb kind of deal. Yeah, so they also threw pennies too. And then McCready's fans they react to this and they start yelling, Shame, shame. And they do seem to outnumber uh, the McCready haters, but this just fires up the haters even more. There's more booing, there's more hissing, and now some rotten potatoes. I'm reading this, I love this. Not only are they crying shame, shame, they're also saying, down with the codfish aristocracy. <laughs> yes. Um, Believe it or not, I'm doing research while I'm doing this. I'm trying not to slack off. It's okay. You're good. 
So, and then there's the battling crowd chants, each of them doing three cheers for McCready and then three cheers for Forrest and three cheers for McCready and back and forth and have another, a quote from the New York Herald. The scene which follows beggar's description, hisses, groans, cheers, yells, screams, all sorts of noises in the midst of which Mr. McCready still maintained his position in the center of the stage. Off, off, shouted one party. Go on, go on, screamed the other. Mr. McCready approached the lights. He was greeted by roars of ironical laughter and reiterated hisses and groans. A banner was at this moment exhibited in front of the amphitheater, bearing on its side, quote, no apologies, it is too late. And on the other side, you have ever proved yourself a liar. The appearance of this banner was the signal for a perfect tornado of uproarious applause, laughter, cheers, and groans, in the midst of which an old shoe and a scent piece were hurled at Mr. McCready, who picked up the copper coin and, with a kingly air, put it in his bosom, bowing at the same time with mock humility. I kind of like McCready, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> he seems to know how to handle a situation. And so they try to go on with the show. Honestly, the actors are trying to go on with the show, but it's absolutely impossible with both sides of the crowd. As the Herald said, I have Scott, Scott found that quote here. Three groans for the codfish aristocracy, which were responded to with marked enthusiasm. Cries of down with the English hog. Take off the Devonshire bull. Remember how Edwin Forrest was used in London and similar expl exclamations were loud and frequent. Thus passed the whole of the first and second acts, the uproar not ceasing for a moment. When the curtain fell in the second act, the tumult was fiercer than ever, and it was quite apparent that something still more serious was approaching. Now, in the break between acts, the audience is, they're, they're really having fun. They're kind of like chanting things back and forth. They're chanting like the witches. They're making some other jokes that I read that make no sense to me, so I, I, I didn't bother to bring them in. And then the third act happens. There's more uproariness, uproariousness. Still nothing can be heard on stage. And then. And now they're probably drunk, too. Oh, they're quite drunk. Yes. Yes, I'm <laughs> sure. And then someone in the gallery throws a chair on stage. McCready's reaction to this is to bow and smile as it landed near him. And then another is thrown on stage. And everybody's startled. And then one more chair, and that was what it took to pull the plug on this performance. So meanwhile, there's a huge crowd outside trying to get in, and so they have to sneak McCready out another exit, and they also they get the, the terrified upper-class ladies out as well. And there are no injuries, so that's, that's good. Uh, Nope. Uh, from the Herald, no person on the stage was injured by any of the missiles thrown during the evening, but almost all of the actors received a copious allowance of the fetid liquid, which was discharged from the gallery. They took pains to point out that the missiles thrown came from the gallery and that none of them appeared to be aimed directly at the person of Mr. McCready. The object seemed to be to drive him from the stage by every species of contumely. I don't know what that means without personal violence. And there could be no doubt that the effort, which was quite successful in its object was the result of an organized and preconcerted movement. Preconcerted. So it seems like, I like that word. Yeah. Yeah. It's especially good for the theater. So it, it has the, it's a hint of a pun in wordplay, but it's not quite there because theater concert, etc. So yeah, it seemed like this was planned and the whole point was to, act badly enough that McCready would just leave the stage and not finish his performance and maybe never come back. So meanwhile, I, I saw in the paper, they had a listing of the performances and, and sort of reviews of them. McCready is doing Macbeth over at Broadway theater and some other jokers doing it at the Bowery. So like, it's just the Scottish play everywhere in New York that night. Now, <sighs> That show was canceled the May 7th, and McCready is about to cancel his whole tour. He's about to take his ball and go the hell home. But all of the Richie Riches were super amped about this tour, so they get him to stay and make a go of it. And also the people who were backing him wanted to get their money. You know, <laughs> like he's supposed to be touring. We want that money. And so they say, McCready, screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. Got another one. 
And so the plans are in place. They, they're like, we'll do it again. We'll try again. But we'll have some contingency plans in place so that this doesn't happen again. And so the New York City government gets the state militia out that are armed with artillery and mounted on horses. And they set up shop at Washington Square Park. It's about four blocks away from Astor Place Theater. And then inside, you had a ton of cops. Within the theater, there were 200 police officers. And then outside 75, they barricaded the opera house windows. And then they made they made it so that only the, the verified tickets were marked. So they're trying to keep out the riffraff and making sure that the, the ticket agents only sell to the hoity-toity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cops just wanting to get a free show is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so the papers are following this pretty extensively to the point that on May 10th, the day of this performance, the New York Herald on page two had a nearly full page spread that was just letters back and forth from the past. McCready doing his thing, Forrest doing his thing, other people defending them, attacking them, etc. It was, and, and you know those, those newspaper pages. <laughs> it's like six columns of really tiny print. And it's almost, it, it's almost all specifically devoted to the feud. Your mother smells of elderberries. <laughs> yes. So on May 10th, 1849 is the second attempt for McCready to perform the Scottish play at Astor Place. You mean Macbeth? Yeah, yeah. I'm sprinkling it about. I'm, I'm, I'm changing it up. There you go. <laughs> so Variety. So working class people hear about the rescheduling and they're like, yeah, let's, uh, let's go to the theater. And they, they head on down to Astor Place, but it's pretty hard for them to get inside because the theater employees and the cops are checking for Bowery Boys at the door and they're checking tickets. And there was probably a, your monocle must be this big to enter sign somewhere, you know. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So there is a crowd of forest supporters gathering outside. They're passing out their anti-McCready flyers. I have uh, a printout of one of these. Give me one second to get to that. Might probably be easier if I went this way. Okay. And I'll actually, I'll hold it up to you guys so you can see it before I... Oh, it'll be backwards for you anyhow, so that doesn't matter. No, it wasn't backwards. Okay. It was backwards for me. (laughs) Working men... Shall Americans or English rule in this city? The crew of the British steamer have threatened all Americans who shall dare to express their opinions this night at the English aristocratic opera house. We advocate no violence, but a free expression of opinion to all public men. Working men, free men, stand by your lawful rights. White men. (laughs) That's that's what they meant. So, yeah. That was happening. They were they were plastering those all over the place and handing them out to everybody around. That that was apparently a big thing that they did, and it's uh, it's getting to be so that some of the idea, the sentiment is everyone who likes McCready is a Brit and therefore an enemy. And, you know, some of it is they're they're expressing or they're threatening our freedom of expression. And some of it is just uh, I don't like the upper class people. One of the crowd who uh, tried to get in said, I paid for a ticket and they wouldn't let me in because I hadn't kid gloves and a white vest. Damn them. So this crowd outside draws more than just four supporters and Bowery boys. Now you've got some Irish immigrants joining up and it's nice to see people coming together for a cause, you know? I like Nothing unites people like hatred. Yep. Yep. So there's over 10,000 people crowded outside the Astor Place Theater. And the play is starting and you've got your witches conversing in the first scene and then some talk of how the war is going. And McCready's Macbeth is just about to come out stage. And the crowd outside is just losing their shit because they want in. And through all this, the cops are managing to find the few forest supporters who did manage to sneak through, and they're arresting them. Then they toss them all in the same holding cell, which... I love this part. (laughs) Go ahead, Amber. So they put them all in the same cell where they start to gather things and make a fire 
Because what happens when you put rioters in a cell together? They're going to burn it down. It's amazing. <laughs> Doesn't even matter that they're in it. Yep. Somebody should have seen that coming, but they didn't. So, well, you know what? Well, and I don't know if this was related or not, but um, they one of the rioters that didn't start the fire supposedly poked his head through the window to inform the crowd outside that they were lighting a fire. Because he's like, I don't want to burn to death. So uh, a police officer in the, in the lobby stuck a hose through one of the windows and started to spray the crowd. So I don't know if he was trying to calm the crowd down, like you would spray a cat with water, or if he was he heard there was a fire and was trying to be helpful. I'm really, I don't know why. <laughs> I'm saying this is probably a quick-thinking motherfucker, and this dude went, Two problems, one solution. And just, it'll calm them down, plus put out the fire. If they were all women in this thing, we'd have the start of a porno as well. <laughs> as for the fire, if you think about it, it might have had another purpose. Because, it, remember, the Bowery Boys are mostly volunteer firemen. So oh, if, didn't even think of that. Yeah, if you start a fire, you might get the firemen who are on your side and might let you out. <laughs> you might get some backup. Yeah. So the crowd is getting really, really wild. The cops are the first line of defense. They start with clubs. They're beating people down as they try to storm the opera house. Because so that always crowd... makes angry people calm right the fuck down. Yeah, yeah. This, 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 this definitely escalates things. The, the crowd starts grabbing some, some bricks and cobblestones and just hurling them at the theater. And but they burst some water pipes on the building. They break a couple streetlights. So that probably darkened the scene and made everything even more chaotic. And then they turn the rocks on the militiamen who are like, you brought bricks to a gunfight. <laughs> so, at, yeah. At first, it's warning shots above the crowd. But then when the bricks and cobblestones keep coming... They turn their rifles onto the crowd itself. The number of dead that resulted from this varies. Uh, it's usually 22 to 24. Some sources, which very wildly have it as much as 31. I was just thinking the other day, I haven't sung in a while. <laughs> Break out the old crooner. <laughs> and um, 120 wounded and 100 arrested. There's a quote from uh, the Major General Charles Sanford who was there. During a period of 35 years of military service, I have never seen a mob so violent as the one on that evening. I never before had occasion to give the order to fire. You could, and, good job, man. <laughs> good work. Yeah. Hear that? We're the best. <laughs> no, not since the American Revolution had there been such a deadly conflict between the military and civilians. This is the first time in like 75 years. It happens when you get the Irish together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so McCready, he noped out via the back door. He gets back to his hotel safe and sound. Uh, for a couple of days, there was some concern that the mobs would find him at the hotel, storm it, murder him. So he heads up to Boston pretty quickly and then gets, gets the hell out of the country. So... Um, and then there's the aftermath. Now, there was talk of a second riot. People wanted justice uh, for the, the their own countrymen who had been fired on by their own countrymen. And there was, there was a grand jury convened. They did indict some rioters. Uh, they were either never arrested or if they had been arrested, a lot of them were released on their own recognizance. It seems that only a total of 10 of the main ringleaders were convicted, but likely they didn't do terribly long sentences. It's kind of hard to, to dig that up. There were they, they don't have the police blotter so much in the old-fashioned newspapers. You don't get to learn all the crimes your neighbors have committed. <laughs> so I do love that are, about our society. Yes, we do. There are no charges brought against any of the militiamen, and the grand jury decides that their conduct was justified. So we talk about this as a, a moment of class warfare. It's mostly seen that way in hindsight. It's mostly as we look back and we have that benefits of hindsight that we can look back and see the circumstances. But for the average man on the street, 
he maybe was feeling some of that, you know, bitter bitterness and anger towards the upper classes and channeling it into his defense of Edwin Forrest and his attack on McCready. But really but, they went over actors in a play. <laughs> exactly. When, when, if you would ask any of them what the fight was about, not a single one of them would have been, well, it was class warfare. Simple as that. You know, <laughs> they would have been like, Oh, because that bastard McCready tried to come to our shores and perform Shakespeare. So McCready is a British dick. Cunt. <laughs> yeah. So, from the newspapers of the day, uh, I have kind of an example of this. Yet, after all, although the quarrel between these rival play actors was in itself so supremely contemptible, behold, it's awfully mischievous results. Carrying their private griefs and resentments with characteristic impertinence before the great body of the public, these two actors diligently set themselves to work for the purpose of organizing rival factions of friends and admirers. They issue their cards and make their speeches and fulminate their inflammatory appeals. McCready, in shrieking accents, tells the story of his direful wrongs. Forrest bellows his fierce anathemas. Thus, they keep up the strife week after week. So you see the actors themselves being blamed for the actions taken sort of on their behalf by the working class people. And... And it, it, they really go hard on the actors. Vain and wicked are all attempts to disguise the true features of this sad affair. The impudence and jealousy of the two play actors, the folly and impertinence of a paltry clique, and the imbecility and wantonness of the public authorities. These and these alone furnish us with the whole explanation of this tragedy. But obviously this didn't heal things. There was a divide between the classes, and it only got deeper after this within in New York and in, within the whole country. To quote someone I named a cat after, I think our country sinks beneath the yoke. It weeps, it bleeds, and each new day a gash is added to her wounds. Thank God that we have risen above that in our modern era. And how, regardless of, of a person's paycheck, that we are all equal human beings in the eyes of, of, of the government. <laughs> how did you say that with a straight face? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He struggled a little bit. I, I can did. see it. <laughs> it's his lip twitching. <laughs> so, the thing is, I, I'm coming back around to that thing I talked about at the beginning about Shakespeare in American society. How it came to be this way we can look back at this riot as part of that. And because after this, the divide between the classes that was deepening and deepening was then reflected in their entertainment. You had some serious actors who were kind of holding themselves above the lower class proto vaudevillian actors and venues. And then they go to and hold plays at venues where only the upper class go or can afford to go. And so you have the lower class venues that they respond to that particular perceived slight by putting on a performance that mocked Shakespeare. And that is how Shakespeare went from the entire public's favorite playwright to the playwright of snobs and elite and literati, essentially. And now the Astor Place riots would remain the most violent incident in New York City history for a whole 14 years <laughs> until the draft riots occurred in 1863 because get ready for it guys I'm about to deliver the performance of a lifetime here it comes tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty place from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury. Signifying nothing. Boom, nailed it. Somebody get that woman an Oscar. <laughs> you should see them guys tears streaming down their faces they are so affected by my performance i th i think scott is just gonna hurl himself onto the ground 
<laughs> in just abject misery at how brilliant that was. <laughs> I'm, st I'm still oh. trying to research this show. I want to find out how this ends. <laughs> that is how it ends. That's the end. <laughs> Unless you guys have any more. Um, I do have a little fun fact for you. So um, I, I, I had mentioned earlier about how the this was like the thing to do. This was their going to the movies, going out. And so they would drink heavily. Um, there was somebody that was trying to just put into words how much these people were drinking at the time. So uh, in 1825, the average American over the age of 15 consumed seven gallons of whiskey a year. Workers would punctuate their morning and mid-afternoon breaks with hard liquor. How many gallons do you think you drink a year, Amber? Oh, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you're putting I mean, these way more than that. You're putting yeah. these men to shame. I am putting these men to shame. But uh, I think, I, I feel like that, that is still like quite a lot for anybody to, to go drink at the theater. So... <laughs> I'm thinking about doing that tonight. <laughs> Seven gallons. So that is the Astor Place riots. The rare time I get to bring in some Shakespeare to this joint. I love it. So don't forget, if you enjoyed that, you can go over to Apple Podcasts and you can show your love for us with a review. It just takes a couple minutes of your time and it's free. I can't think of anything better that you can support something that you enjoy, that you learn from, that entertains you, and it's free. You don't have to pay a dime. If you do want to pay a dime, you can buy some of our merch over at oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. If it's your first time going there, there will be a couple of items that are marked kind of not safe for work because they have uh, different rules and I was abiding by them. Just click a thing and you'll see everything after that. So you only have to do it dick is so huge. Wait till you <laughs> see it on the t-shirt. So it's like a chair tall. leg. She's as tall laying down and she is standing up. <laughs> There's also our social media. We are old timey crimey over on Facebook on Twitter and on Instagram and other shows we are on. I am on Detectives by the Decade and Amber and Scott do some voice work for that. And also I am on Short Story Short Podcast and the links for both of those will be in the show notes. And Scott, I always forget to pimp yours, so go ahead. Good morning, Cybertron. It's like Transformers and the Aster Riots. It's pretty much just the same thing. <laughs> I can't wait until next week's show. Apparently some guy bought a toy from a uh, from like a Chinese supplier and he went to uh, charge the batteries and it exploded and damn near killed him. <laughs> oh my god. Oh wow. I can't wait Whoa. till next Wednesday to talk about that. <laughs> so if you happen to got uh, happen to have purchased an X-Transbots Dr. Egg uh, for the love of God, make sure you have the right batteries in it, huh, people? Wow. <laughs> Whew. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, that is all of our promotional stuff. So what are we doing this weekend, guys? We're having a white elephant party. Yeah, in about half an hour or so. So <laughs> it's going to be the extreme socially distant kind done uh, uh, all via computer. We're going to have a... One camera set up to point at the tree and there'll be all the presents that people have been dropping off at our house all week. They'll be numbered and everybody picks their present. And I'm going to have uh, uh, pictures of you all on my couch and then I'll put your present in front of you. <laughs> and it's going to be very weird and just a little bit creepy. So that should be fun. <laughs> I love weird and creepy. I'm not doing any of this. <laughs> done. Done with it. Oh. Scott's like, the first time I am on that couch is going to be my real ass, not my that's, printed out face. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I just want to sleep at this point. That's, 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 what I, that's what I'm doing this week. Fucking sleeping. There you go. 
All right. So thank you all so much, as always, for listening to our filthy words. And we will see you next week with some more historical true crime and uh, some more of those filthy words as well. I'm, uh, I'm absolutely sure. So in the meantime, bye. 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 My sources this week are Shakespeare and Beyond on the Folger Library, James Cook from Shakespeare in American Life, Robert McNamara on ThoughtCo, Wikipedia, the New York Herald, accessed via the Chronicling America Project, and Betsy Golden Kellum on Smithsonian Magazine. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't do any research at all. I have no sources. Let's just say Wikipedia, because as soon as I find out what it is we're talking about, that's the page I'll go to. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a bad week. My sources this week are all that's interesting.com by Joseph Williams, SmithsonianMag.com by Betsy Golden Kellum, TheOutline.com by John Gantz, and ThoughtCo.com by Robert McNamara. <laughs> <laughs>